Father, we just come to you again to your word, and, and Lord, we just uh, are so blessed to, to be told the things that you tell us here in 1 John about just how much you love us, how you've given your only begotten Son, Lord, so that we can be sure that we have eternal life. Lord, that's what the book's all about. It's about showing us uh, just how we can be sure that we truly do have, we truly have put our faith in, in you, Lord, and and uh, once we've done that, Lord, there's just so many great blessings for us. And, Lord, uh, there's also responsibility that comes with that privilege. And you've shown us that through this book, and you're going to continue to show us that. Lord, I just ask that you, you take these scriptures today, and, and, Lord, that we do examine our own hearts and make sure that we're truly born again because Lord when we know that uh, it just changes our relationship with you it changes our relationship with others it changes how we live and so Lord we all want to be sure and uh, you're going to show us how again today uh, as we go to First uh, John chapter 5 so I just ask you bless our study today Lord we ask that in the name of Jesus Christ it's in his precious name that I pray amen if you have your bulletins today I was no, I had mine here a while ago, if I can find it, there we go, and you look at the cover. David does a good job with these covers. Sometimes you can look at the cover of the bulletin, and you can get the whole message and you can go home, because he pretty much, you know, he, he nails the, the theme of what we want to look at today, and you see this guy here on top of this mountain, and it looks like the sun's coming up. Some say it's going down, but I'm going to say the sun's coming up, and the sun's coming up. And what is he doing? He's got his hands up and he's worshiping God. And there's a lot of symbolism in that picture because when we get in our closets and we go to the Lord and we lift our hands up to the Lord and the sun comes up, comes up and, and, and we, even though the room is dark, we can sense the light of God in there and we just know that he's present and we know that he's going to hear our prayers. And, and, and so... Uh, we're blessed. But the only way you can pray like that, the only way you can pray like that is if you know that you know that you're truly born again. And that's why John gives us these tests in the book of 1 John. And that was the purpose of his book. Go, go to 1 John and look in chapter 5. And look with me down at verse number 13. We won't get there today, but, but listen to what he says there. And we looked at this when we did the introduction to the book. There's no doubt about why John wrote this book. He tells us. He says in verse 13, he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, look at this, that you may know, that you know, that you have eternal life. Now, that's important because look at verse 15. If we know that he hears us, if we know, and if we know we have eternal life, we know he hears us, then whatever we ask, we know that we have, have the petitions that we have asked of him. And so you want to put power in your prayers, then you got to know. You got to know with all your heart that you're truly born again. And so John has given us these tests so that we can test ourselves, and make sure that we truly know the Lord. And what were those tests that he's given us? Well, the first test, are, and I'm not going to necessarily put these in chronological order, but, but what, the first test that I'll look at 
is the test of truth. Do you know truth? If you don't know truth, then you're tr not truly born again. If you don't understand, and, and I say understand is a bad word, if you don't recognize that this word is true, that it's the absolute truth of God, then you're not born again. Look at John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, and look down in verse number 20. He says in verse 20, he said, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, from the Holy Spirit, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not tr know truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. You recognize lies, and you recognize truth. You recognize true doctrine, and you recognize false doctrine. Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit of God. Now, the second test, and he's gone over this test over and over and over again because maybe it's the most important test, and that is, do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ? And do you want to look at that test? Go to... 1 John chapter 4, and look down at verse number 7. 1 John chapter 4, verse number 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Now, obviously, if we're born again, who lives in us? God lives in us, and love is of God. And so if God is in us, then we have love. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now, that's not any kind of love there. That's agape love. That's selfless love. That's supernatural love. That's divine love. He who does not love with agape love does not know God, for God is love. Now, that makes sense, right? And then the third test is, do we keep God's commandments? Look at verse number, chapter 3, verse number 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. So if you, ever, if you sin, you're not born of God. Now, now the part of you that's born of God does not sin. You still sin because you still have your flesh, and the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. But the spirit of God that lives in you, that divine seed that God has given you, never sins. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. See, that divine seed cannot sin. You can still sin. But when you sin, you know what's wrong. And you can't live in sin because you know that sin is wrong. You, you can't stand yourself when you sin. You know, before I was saved, I was just fine with my sin. But after I got saved, I could not stand my sin. I could not stand myself when I sin. And I still sin. And when I do, I can't stand myself. I say, Lord, I, I, I can't stand myself. Change me. Change my heart, oh God. Make it ever true. I, I want to be like you always. And that's our heart if we're truly born again. Now, as we come to chapter 5 today, he's going to reiterate those three tests to make sure that we know that we know that we're truly saved. And when he's going to head into this in the last part of chapter 5, because when we do know that we're truly saved, there is power in our prayers. And if you're living in sin and you're not loving your brother and, and, and uh, you, you don't really like the Bible, hey, you're, you're going to sin. And your prayers aren't going to be powerful because more than likely you're not even saved. And that's the point that he's going to make here. And he's going uh, to begin with a focus on faith, on truth, the truth of, whether or not, of what you know about 
Jesus Christ. Who you think Jesus Christ really is. Look at verse number 1. Chapter 5, verse number 1. He says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. Now you see two tests right there. You see the first test is truth, which we've already looked at. And the second test is love. Let me ask you something. How are we born again? We're born again when we believe in Jesus Christ. Now, the demons believe in Jesus Christ. There are a lot of uh, Muslims who believe in Jesus Christ. So it's not just believing a set of facts about Jesus Christ. We've talked about this before, but that Greek word to believe is the Greek word pistio. And it means to put your faith in. I mean, it doesn't simply mean to, to believe facts. It means to put your faith in those facts, to, to put your whole life and trust your whole life to those facts. And so uh, when we truly believe, then we have put our faith in Jesus Christ and the work that Jesus Christ has, has done on the cross. And, and, and we love him because he first loved us. And because he lives in us, we have love. And you look at this verse again, he says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him, and we love him because he first loves us, when we put our faith in him, uh, we are given the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is love. And so everyone who loves him, who loves him who begot, uh, also who begot us, also loves him who is begotten uh, of him. In other words, it is natural for you to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, it's always fun to watch uh, as a family brings in a new child uh, and adds to their roster. And it's fun to watch the siblings, how it's natural for them to love that newborn child. I mean, they want to protect that child. They're excited about that child. They want to help that child in any way they can. And that's the way it should be if we're truly born again. I mean, if we're truly born again, when somebody comes into the faith and they're new to the faith, we're excited about that. We want to protect them. We want to help them. That comes natural to us because we've been begotten of God. We love those who... God begot the, 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 the new people who he brings into the kingdom of God. All right, then look at verse number two. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and we keep his commandments. Now, he ties the second test of love to the third test of keeping his commandments. We know that we love the children of God and God if we keep the commandments. Why? Because the commandments are all about loving God and all about loving one another. And so when we pass the first test and we put our faith in Jesus Christ, then we're sealed with the Spirit of God. And when we're sealed with the Spirit of God, we looked at this last week, we become part of the new covenant. And in the new covenant, the laws and commandments of God are written upon our hearts. And so it becomes the natural thing for us to keep the commandments. We're not under law. 
We're, we're no, long, no one's under law who believes on Jesus Christ. We're not under law, but we keep the law because it's the natural thing to do. I mean, for example, the law says thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not steal. And we keep those co covenant commandments, not because we're trying to keep the letter of the law, but we're keeping them because of the spirit of the law. And what's the spirit of the law? The spirit of the law is love. Now, if you're my brother and sister in Christ, I'm not going to covet what you have, unless it's a really good motorcycle. You know, I'm, I'm joking. I'm not going to covet your stuff. I want you to have your stuff. I'm certainly not going to steal your stuff. You're my brother. You're my sister in Christ. And I love you. And I want you to have the best. So I'm not going to be stealing from you. And if I can steal from you and covet your stuff and hate you because you got more stuff than me, then I'm not born again. And when I'm born again, I have love in my heart. I have love for you. I have love for the, even the lost. I even love my enemies to a certain degree. But that comes with, from the Spirit of God. And so it's just natural for us to keep the commandments. Because look at verse number 3. For this is the love of God, if we keep his commandments. Look, you, you go back home today, and you go to Genesis, I mean, I'm sorry, Exodus 20, and you read the Ten Commandments, and you just study those Ten Commandments, and what you're going to see, you're going to see that they are all about love. They're all about love. And because they're all about love, they're not burdensome. I mean, if you're, if you're born again, then then why are they not burdensome? Because they're part of who you are. It's natural for you not to covet. It's natural for you not to murder. It's natural for you not to lie. It's natural for you to love the Lord. I mean, the very first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, look, if you've got all sorts of gods before the Lord, I gotta wonder if you're born again. I mean, we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and all our mind, and we don't always do that. Don't get me wrong. But there's something wrong in your heart if you don't love the Lord. Because when we're born again, that love is placed in our heart. Man, I love the Lord. I love his word. Before I was born again, I got to tell you, when I was a little kid, my mama made me go to church. My dad made me go to church every time the church doors would open. And I didn't like it. And I read, they made me read the Bible, and I didn't like it. And I made me memorize, memorize verses, and I didn't like it. It was burdensome. Every time I picked it up, it was burdensome. Let me warn you, if this word is burdensome to you, you got a problem. Because when I was born again, and I realized that this was God's love letter to me, that this was his absolute truth, his absolute word, I fell in love with the Word of God. Don't you love the Word of God? I mean, that's why you're here, because you love the Word of God. And, and so that's a natural thing. That's not a burdensome commandment for me to, to, to keep the first commandment that I'll have no other gods before Jehovah God. Jehovah God who died for me, who sent his son to die for me, who shed his blood for me who gave me his Holy Spirit, who gave me a new life. I mean, that's not burdensome at all. Four, look at verse number four. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. 
if, for whoever is a better translation there. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world. You get victory over the world. And this is the victory that it overcomes the world by your faith. You get victory over the world. Now, what's the world he's talking about? Well, if you remember back in John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, what, remember what he said? What, what makes up the world? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Let me put it in one word. All of you know this word. You're very familiar with this word. Selfishness. Selfishness. That's the way of the world. Selfishness. And selfishness gets in the way of love. But if you've been over, if you've been born again, you overcome your selfishness. You overcome the pride of life. You overcome the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. Now the fact he says overcomes there in the first part of uh, verse number four tells me that there's a battle to be fought that you've got to overcome that. It's not something that happens immediately when you're born again. But, but the more you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, and the more you fight this battle with the intent of winning, the more you're going to win. And, and, and how do we win? Do we win by sucking it up and through our best efforts? No, how do we win? He tells us, by faith. That's what overcomes our, the world. That's what overcomes our selfishness. It is our faith. Look at verse number five. Who is he who overcomes the world? Here, here's the answer. It's your faith in what? He, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. See, it's by faith in the power of Jesus Christ. I got to believe, look, if you've got a Jesus who's not God, you got the wrong Jesus. I mean, if you understand that you put your faith in Jesus Christ and that he is God Almighty, then you're going to overcome because you're going to be relying on the power of Christ and not your own self-strength. Uh, you're going to rely on him. Look back at Galatians chapter 2. Go to Galatians chapter 2. Paul says the same thing a little bit differently in Galatians chapter 2, I believe verse 21. Actually, verse 20. Listen to what he says. He says, by faith, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. That means I, 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 my self-reliance is gone. I crucify my selfishness, my self-reliance. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, in God, in His Son, who loved me and gave Himself for me. See, that's how we get overcome the world. That's how we overcome our selfishness, through faith in the power of Jesus Christ. But i got to tell you, that's a process. That doesn't happen all at once. It happens grace upon grace and as we're changed from glory to glory, and we'll never be fully sanctified, we'll never be, have total victory over the world until we live in those glorified bodies. How about that? That's a great day we're looking forward to. So we don't do it by our strength, we do it by believing in Jesus Christ. 
that he is the son of God, that he is almighty God, and that he has the power to make us more loving. He gives us the power to crucify our flesh. Now look at verse number six. This is he who came by water and blood. That's easy to figure out. Start thinking about that one for a second. Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by the water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is true. Let me tell you what. In my opinion, and I'm not the only one who has this opinion, two of the most complicated verses in the Bible to interpret are 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, and 1 John chapter 5, verse 8. Those are two of the most difficult passages in Scripture to interpret. I'm not even going to tell you here if you want to be right, then listen to my interpretation because I very well might be wrong on this. I know y'all might y'all gonna log that down. But but this one's tough. What does he mean, he who came? by the water and the blood. I could give you 10 different interpretations for this right now. And I, I can't be absolutely sure which one's right. Uh, now, what he's doing, he's coming back to the test of truth. Let's talk about that for a second here. Because you aren't going to love, you aren't going to keep the commandments, if you don't know the truth about who Jesus Christ is, if you don't know about his power, and that's the essence of what he's saying right here. So he says, this is he who came by the water and blood. So he wants you to know the truth. He wants you to pass the test. Who is he who came by water and blood? Jesus Christ. So we know that. But this is a difficult passage, and, and maybe we ought to skip it, because a lot of people do. But we're, we're going to at least try to look at it. So let me, let me take a shot and, and see if maybe we can come, out, come up with maybe what it means. Now, I'm not going to look at all the interpretations today because we would be here a long time and we want to have this little fellowship afterwards. Would you all rather have the fellowship or get all the interpretations? I know you want the fellowship. We don't want to ditch chap in the Gary's here. So, so we're going to just look at a few of these. All right. Maybe the most common is that the water represents the water of the baptism of Jesus Christ and that the blood represents the blood that he shed on the cross. Another interpretation that's very common is that he's referring to the water and the blood that came out of his side when he was pierced with the sore, I mean with the spear, while he was on the cross. After he had given up the spirit, he was pierced with a sword, and out came water and blood. Now, that's another difficult passage, too. Uh, and then there's another interpretation that the water is the water of Mary's womb, and that the blood is the blood that flowed through his body when he came to this earth and took on a body. Now, which interpretation would you lean towards? 
Whenever we want to interpret something, what do we want to do? We always want to put it where? In its context. Now, what's the context of this passage? And and this is why I lean towards the third interpretation. Because what's the context of the passage? He who came. When he's talking about coming, he's talking about his incarnation. Now, the water of the womb might sound, man, that's kind of a stretch. But go back with me to John chapter 3. Go back to the gospel of John chapter 3. I think one of the most fascinating passages in the Bible. And until you get this passage down, I don't think you're born again. Until you understand what Jesus said, when he wasn't kidding around, he said what? You must be born again. And what did Nicodemus say? Man, how can you be born again? I mean, how can you go back into your mother's womb where the water is? How can you go back into your mother's womb and be born again? And and, And remember... Remember what he said. He said in verse number 5, in John chapter 3, verse number 5, he says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit. I'm in John chapter 3, verse number 5. Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, there are all sorts of interpretations there. You can get about 10 interpretations there about what the water means. But again, in context, he get, tells us in the very next verse, because he says that which is born of the flesh. So he's talking, about, he's talking about your first birth where you come out of the womb, out of your mother's womb where the water is. So he's talking about that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So you've got to be born of the water, of the, of the flesh. You've got to be born as a human being. And then you've got to be born of the spirit in order to truly be saved. Now, does that make sense? All right, now go back to, back to John, uh, I mean, 1 John chapter 5. And we put this into context. And it makes sense that Jesus came by the water, and he came by the blood. He came in the water of the womb, and he came with flesh and blood. Whose blood did he come with? He came with the blood of God. He also came with the blood of David. He was 100% man, and he was 100% human. And that's exactly the point of what John's trying to say here. Regardless of how many different interpretations you come up with, he's trying to say that Jesus didn't just come as spirit, He came as man, 100% man and 100% God. There was a heresy in that day, and we talked about this in the introduction. It's called Gnosticism. And I I told you then that John didn't write this book with the specific purpose of addressing Gnosticism. I don't believe that one bit because he tells us in verse 13 here why he wrote the book. And that was so that we'll know that we have eternal life. That's his purpose. But John was aware of the heresy of Gnosticism. And what Gnosticism was, it was a form of Christianity that said that Jesus never really came in the flesh. The Gnostics believe that the flesh is evil. Now, you might laugh at that, but there are all sorts of religions that teach that the flesh is evil. There are all sorts of of right-wing Christian churches that teach that anything of the flesh is evil. If you indulge your flesh in any way, you're committing evil. 
No, God made us what? Body, soul, mind, and spirit. He made us he made us one. We're, we're made one human being. And you're not a human being if you don't have a body. You're not a human being if you don't have a spirit. You're not a human being if you don't have a mind. It takes all three to make you a human being. And what the Gnostics were saying was that, that the material world is so evil, that humans are so evil, that Jesus would have never taken on flesh. So this makes sense when he says, listen again, he says in... Uh, Verse number six, this is he who came by water and blood. He didn't come just in the spirit. Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who bears witness because he is the spirit of truth. When did the spirit bear witness? The spirit bore witness at his baptism. And, and uh, when God said from heaven, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased, and the spirit rested on him in the form of a dove, he bore witness there. But he also, the spirit bears witness in the word of God. And the spirit bears witness in our hearts. That's what John is saying right there. Now, we don't understand how all of this worked. Anybody that tells you they understand exactly how God uh, orchestrated the virgin birth, they're crazy. Don't listen to him. Nobody knows how he did that. Nobody knows how God incarnate came to this earth. Nobody knows exactly how he did that. Nobody knows exactly what took place on that cross. Nobody understands exactly how the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. People laugh at that. I mean, you mean to tell me that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all unrighteousness? If you're, if you're saved here, that look, sounds stupid to you. But who bears witness that the blood cleanses us? The Spirit. Who bears witness that Jesus was born again? The Spirit. And what John is saying right here, if you, you might not understand these things, but if you're not aware of these things, if these things aren't truth to you, then you're not born again. And you're not, you can't be sure you have eternal life until you know it. And let me tell you what, it begins with knowing who Jesus Christ is. If you don't understand that he's God Almighty, you're not saved. You're, you can't be saved. If you don't understand that it was the blood of God that was shed for you on that cross, you can't be saved. And that's the point that he's making right here. And then in verse number 7, Listen to what he says in verse number 7 of chapter 5. He says, for there are three that bear witness in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And just to keep you from messing up your theology, he says, and these three are one. These three are one. Now, I'm probably going to upset some people here, but don't leave. You can stay and eat cake anyway afterwards. I mean, don't get mad. But the word in heaven there, and then in verse 8 where you see the word on earth, that is not, that, both of those phrases are not in any of the earliest manuscripts of the Bible. They're not there. You can't find those two phrases into the 14th century manuscript that was used by the King James translators. 
They're not there. The, the two phrases actually were in the margins of the text in the older manuscripts, but they weren't in the actual text. So when the King James translators translated the text into Old English, they took them out of the margins and put those two phrases in the text. Now that tells me that they ought not to be there. Oh, whoa, wait a minute. The, I'm a King Jamer, and I believe that the King James is the inspired word of God. Be careful with that. Have you ever looked at a 1611 copy of the King James Bible? If you notice in the 1611 copy of the King James Bible, first of all, you can't even read it because it's old English. I get the kick out of these people. Too. I would never use the new King James. Buddy, if you're using the King James, you're using the new King James. Because you go look at a 1611 copy, you're not reading from a 1611 copy. Let me tell you what else is in the 1611 copy of the King James Bible. The Apocrypha. Have you ever read the Gospel of Thomas? Go read that and tell me that's inspired. So if you're telling me that the, the King James Bible is inspired, the inerrant inspired word of God, you're telling me that the Apocrypha is the inerrant inspired word of God, and I promise you it's not. So what do I think about the King James? I think the King James is the absolute best Bible that's ever been made. That's what I believe. I believe I like the New King James because I like that it's in modern, more, a more modern English. And, and I'm not putting the King James down. Let me tell you what I do believe about the King James Bible. I believe that God orchestrated history in order to produce the King James Bible. It is a great Bible. But don't get your feathers all ruffled when you hear that it's not. There are people that will break fellowship with you if you tell them that the King James Bible is not the inerrant word of God. The original text, is the inerrant. When John wrote this down, it was the inerrant word of God. But, and, and i got to tell you, what's absolutely amazing to me in, in, in my studies of textual criticism when I was in seminary is how accurate the Bible, how close it is to the original text. These are just minor things. But here it isn't a minor thing, and that's why I bring it up. Let's reread this. Take it out and reread verse number 7. For there are three that bear witness, the Father of Jesus Christ. There are three that bear witness, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Let me tell you what has always impressed me about the Apostle John and his, the books that he writes. I'm not so impressed with 2nd and 3rd John. We'll get into those here in a few weeks. But, but uh, when you read the Gospel of John, and you read 1 John, there are these short, profound theological bombs that he throws out. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You, you could take two hours of Greek, and you could read that in the Greek, but you could take the rest of your life, and you couldn't understand all that's encompassed in those few words in the Greek that he writes there. And this is one of those verses right here. It's the same way. He says, there's three who bear witness, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. Well, we know who the Father is, right? We know who the Holy Spirit is. Who's the Word? Well, that's the Logos. 
That's, John loved to use that name for Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God, and the Logos became flesh. That's the word he's speaking of here. So there's no problem with, with the interpretation. They all three bear witness to something. What do they bear witness to? They bear witness to the fact in ch- chapter 4, verse 2, we looked at that earlier, that Jesus came, that he came in the flesh, that God came. He wasn't created. God wasn't, a, Jesus Christ is not a created being. He came. He came from his throne in heaven and into the womb of Mary. And when Mary was looking upon that baby, she was looking upon the face of God. I mean, that's absolutely amazing. And and then he says in verse number 6, that's the same thing they're they're witnessing also to what we just looked at in verse number 6. This is he who came by the water and the blood. He came. He wasn't created. He came. And these... And he's, so he's clearly referring to the Trinity here. He's referring to the Father. I mean, I don't think there's a clearer statement of the Trinity in the Bible than there is right here. The Father, the Logos, and the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But then he makes another profound statement. These three are one. I didn't make that up. Who said that? John said that, these three are one. Why did he make that statement? He made that statement to make sure you never drifted off into a heresy that I call, I think I kind of coined the word, but I call it hyper-Trinitarianism. In other words, where you you move yourself into polytheism instead of Trinitarianism. What do I mean by hyper-Trinitarianism? Well, let me give you an example. I heard a preacher the other day on Moody Proclaim Network. And I like Moody. I, that's why I was listening to it. And I heard him, he was preaching a sermon from Hebrews ch- chapter 5 and chapter 6 about the body of Christ being offered up uh, for our salvation. And here's what he said. He said, one day... Up in heaven, they formed a three-person committee that included the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And after the committee met, they decided that they would send Jesus Christ to this earth to die for our sins. That's the way a lot of people see it up there. They see these three gods sitting around the Holy Spirit. He's the shape of a man in his spirit. And there's a father, he's an old man with a beard, and then there's Jesus Christ. And that's kind of the way he saw it. And they got the committee together, and they decided one day, hey, we need to save these people, and we need to send Jesus down and let him die for their sins. Now, that statement is grossly wrong on a couple of counts. First of all, remember what Peter told us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. He said that our salvation was foreordained before the foundation of the world. God is omniscient. You understand what that means? That means he knows everything. How long has he known everything? He's always known everything. As long as God has existed, you can go back trillions and trillions and trillions of years, 
And God knew that he was going to create this earth, that Adam and Eve were going to fall, and that he was going to send his son to die for our sins. I mean, if he's not omniscient, he's not God. God has never not known everything. God knows everything or he's not God. The only time that God was limited in knowledge was when? When the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, emptied himself of his glory and he came to this earth to die for our sins. Remember, Jesus didn't know when he was coming back. He said he didn't know when he was coming back. He didn't know everything when he emptied himself of his glory. But let me tell you what, I got news for you. When he went back to heaven, all that glory was restored. And he knows everything. Everything. Now, the second theological error that this guy made was that he makes God into three individual persons. This three-person committee. And I got to tell you, when you do that, I don't care what you call yourself. You can call yourself an evangelical, but you have engaged in polytheism. You've come up with a three-headed God or three gods. There is not three gods. I heard another guy. I didn't hear this guy. I mean, I love this particular. He's from like the 1800s. I'm not going to name his name. I read his works all the time. And I was reading the other day, and he made this statement that I've got good news for you. You have three gods in heaven who are praying for you. You have the Father praying for you. You have the Holy Spirit praying for you. You have the Son praying for you. I mean, they all ever live to make prayers for you. Now, I don't know who the Father prays to if, if he's a, a the greater God than the other gods, but and that's the kind of picture this was painting. Look, you do have, in one sense, he was right. You do have three gods praying for you. But it's the same prayer. I mean, they have the same mind. They have the same soul. And when God, when the Father prays for you, the, when the Son prays for you, the Father, is, that's his prayer for you too. When the Spirit prays for you, that's the Son's prayer for you too. It's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Listen, what does John say right here? He says, these three are one. These three are one. And, and, the, and, and the Bible's clear that when you try to make God into three separate gods, that is heresy. Listen to what the Sheba says. You know, all of you are familiar with the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God the Lord is one. Let me read that to you in the Hebrew. Shema, which means here. Shema Israel, Jehovah Elohim, Jehovah Echad. Echad in the Hebrew means one. It means one. And that's exactly what John is saying right here when he says, these three are one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. These three are one. Jesus used that same word one when he said, I and the Father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, I know the standard argument. I, I've heard it. When people come back at you they, they, with this little canned argument that one doesn't mean one. Reminds me of Bill Clinton. Is doesn't mean is. I mean, what does is mean? 
One doesn't mean one. One means one in the Greek, and it means one in the Hebrew. It means one in the same. Let me show you. Go to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. We're talking about the Tower of Babel. You remember the story. Now the whole earth had one, ekad, ekad, there it is, language. And it had one speech. Now, those who will argue against the pure trinity and those that will tell you that there are three totally different gods will tell you that one means unity. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that mean unity right there? I mean, is it talking about a, a unified group of languages or is it talking about one in the same language? You tell me. It's one in the same. Is it talking about a group of speeches that make one or is it talking about one in the same speech? It's talking about one in the same speech. And the only time, and there are some rare cases where the word one does mean unity, but it's still talking about one in the same. I mean, in, in Genesis chapter 1, it says uh, there was the evening and the morning, and it made the first day, it, or really ikad day. It was one day. It was one and the same day. There's unity in the morning and the evening because it makes that day. But he's not talking about separate days here. He's talking about one in the same day. Now, this is what I'm trying to tell you. Jehovah is Father God. Jehovah is God the Spirit. And Jehovah is Jesus Christ. It's no accident that that's what his name means. Jehovah is salvation. You know what? In the, in, the, in the Old Testament, it says there's no other Savior but me. The Lord Jehovah says there's no other Savior but me. Well, was he lying? Are there two Saviors? No, there's only one Savior, and that is Jehovah God. And, and he has always been the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit forever. There is a trinity. He's always manifested himself as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but he's not a committee of three distinct gods. Jesus is Jehovah God, the Holy Spirit is Jehovah God, and the Father is Jehovah God, and that's why John says here in 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, I want you to know, little children, these three are one. And he says that to keep people from perverting the Trinity like it's been so perverted over the years. But look, I probably have bored you if you're here today and you're born again because I don't have to tell you these things. I don't have to tell you that that man who died for you on the cross is Almighty God. I don't have to tell you that the blood that came down from that cross was not only the blood of a man who, of the line of David, it was the blood of God. It was the blood of God Almighty. All, that's who died for us. And I, I don't have to tell you that. No more than I have to tell you that you have to keep the commandments because the commandments are part of who you are. You love to keep God's commandments. I don't, tell you how, that, I don't have to tell you that you need to love one another because you already do 
love one another because you're born again and the love of God is in you. And I certainly, I think where it all begins is what we believe about Jesus Christ. If your Savior is anyone but Almighty God, He can't save you. But He came to this earth to save you. And if you're saved, you know it. You know these things. I mean, you can't figure out the deity of Christ through intellectual arguments, you know that because you're born again. If you had to figure it out, I got news for you, you'd never get saved. If you had to figure out the virgin birth, you'd never get saved. And that's why the figuring out the virgin birth isn't how you get saved. Because if we had to figure out the virgin birth, none of us would get saved. No. We know that Jesus is God because we have been born again. I don't know how many of y'all watched the inauguration of our new president, but I wasn't so much impressed with him as I was impressed with the people he has surrounded himself with. It was so refreshing to me Instead of seeing Muslim imams and Hindu priests and Buddhist priests praying, he had one Jewish rabbi and two evangelicals offer the prayer at his inauguration. And one of those evangelicals was Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son. You know, I've always been impressed with that man. And let me tell you why I've been impressed with him. Because of his high view of Jesus Christ. You don't hear him in any interview or any conversation where he doesn't lift up Jesus Christ as his God. And the inauguration was no exception. I mean, I, I, I like... And Graham Lotz for the same reason. She's always lifting up Jesus as her God. Billy Graham did the same thing. That's where they they didn't get that. They got that from the Spirit, but from the same Spirit that was in Billy Graham. And I want to close by reading you the, the words that Franklin Graham spoke about our Lord before millions of people. 31 million people watched that. You hadn't seen that in a long time where the name of the Lord is lifted up before 31 million people. But he began by reading a passage in 2 Timothy, and he took those two passages and he molded them together into a prayer. And he began by talking about praying for kings and all those who are in authority. And I think he was speaking of Donald Trump at that moment and, and all the new congressmen and all the new cabinet and all of these people and that we're to pray for those people. But then he turned to the ultimate authority, the ultimate authority who is Jesus Christ. And he said, Christ is our Savior and God, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God, the man Jesus Christ our Lord, 
who is King of kings and Lord of lords, the, the one who alone has immortality dwelling in inapproachable light, to whom be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He passed the test. He passed the test. Do you pass the test? Well, if you don't pass the test, you're not going to figure out the deity of Jesus Christ in order to pass it. You pass the test when you come to Jesus Christ. You come to the light that God gives you. You come to Christ on his terms. You come to him and he'll show you who he is. He'll show you that, that he's God Almighty. And you'll have an anointing and you'll know truth. And you'll know and love God in a way you never have before. And you'll love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you'll keep his commandments because that's just what you do if you're a born-again believer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, to whom belongs all power and all glory and all dominion forever and ever and ever. Lord, we just thank you for the privilege of knowing you. We thank you for the truth that you've placed in our heart, the knowledge you've placed in our heart, the knowledge you give us through your word. We thank you for your spirit that enables us to love you and to love others as we love ourselves. We thank you for the power you give us through your spirit to keep your commandments, Lord. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know you today, Lord, who's not truly born again, who doesn't pass all three of these tests, then Lord, it's, show them just how simple it is to put their faith in Jesus Christ, and then all of these things will take care of themselves. Lord, we, again, we just thank you for the gospel. We thank you for our Savior. We thank you for his power and his blood. We thank you in his name. Amen.